Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome to our New Year Save Me episode, where this year we're going to talk about Kenneth McDuff, who is dubbed the broomstick killer. We say New Year Save Me because he was released from parole, had the opportunity to not be awful, and then decided to just keep on with his habits, which, you know, sometimes people do. <laughs> Most of the time people do. I don't like I don't have New Year's resolutions. I say I have New Year intentions. Oh, smart. Because I feel like New Year's resolutions. It's like I'm going to start working out and I'm going to like I'm going to lose 17 pounds. Like it's always that kind of stuff. It's never like I like the voice. That's the voice of uh, my uh, my worth is tied to my weight. That's what that is. <laughs> I got that feeling when you were speaking that way. Yeah. Did you feel like judged by my resolution as that sometimes kind of is? Yeah, I felt like I had to say me too. Yeah, that's kind of like that voice wants you to say that so that it can feel better about itself. Yeah. But so my New Year intention is to like going with that same vein is to just be a little kinder to myself and like love myself more and to be a little more mindful with my time because I feel like I can I'll like I'll be like, oh, I have like 10 minutes. I'm going to just like watch TikTok. And then it's seven hours later and I'm like dehydrated. <laughs> My I haven't blinked in 17 weeks. And so, you know, wow, I know it's a lot. That's a long TikTok binge. It's a long TikTok binge and my eyes are dry and my throat's dry. And I just for my own for my own health. I think that's what they were going for when they made that app. They did. There's a on the app. There's a way to see how many videos you've watched. Oh, no, I don't feel good about it. Ben was like trying to guess. And I was like, let's not do this. I don't want to price is right. This number. I actually erased it from my brain what it actually was. Oh, I was going to say, please share with the audience, please. Oh, it was more. It was like way more than a million. And oh, no, oh, I know. What? Yeah. Yeah. It was bad. Does it count the same video over and over again? I don't know. <laughs> because my son will come in and ask to watch cat videos and it's the same cat video. Oh, 15 times in a row. Yeah, that's my life. I'm now. assuming that if you watch it, then it's counting it. But do you have any New Year's intentions? Um, I, I don't because I, I don't want to lie to myself. I know that I fail every year and I've just come to terms with it. And I don't want to fail anymore. So if I don't do it, I won't fail. That's that is true. Uh, that is my perfectionist mindset is that if I am not going to do a thousand percent great at something, maybe I just won't do it. Too. Yeah, I definitely definitely get that. <laughs> I'm alive. I'm doing things. My sister-in-law has like a chalkboard wall in their kitchen. And I wrote like 2021, please be decent. Like not even like great, just like decent, just not what last year was. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. I didn't do any like New Year's celebrations just because I'm so hesitant and suspicious. Yeah. I feel like if I'm too excited, it's going to hurt. Yeah. So if I'm just like, mm, it happened, then it's going to be like, oh, wait, good things. Tiptoeing in. Exactly. Exactly. If I just keep cool, don't make a scene. Yeah. It'll be okay. No frost, no frills. We're just asking that um, not not what we had. Better than what we had. Yeah. Let me rephrase that because a real monkey's paw kind of wish there if it's not what we had <laughs> has to be better. 
And I think we have a lot to look forward to in January. A lot of leadership changes, a lot of good things. Yeah, I mean, a lot of different. Yeah. We're still being led by like an old white guy, but he's probably going to. I'm hoping he's an old, he's a better old white guy. The bar is low on better. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Excited for a leadership change. Yeah. Some good things to look forward to, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. While this guy did not. This guy has nothing, <laughs> had nothing to look forward to because he is just a terrible human being. Yeah. Was a terrible human being. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, okay, so let's let's get into Kenneth McDuff. So he's suspected of nine to fourteen murders. He's the only killer in Texas to be sentenced to death by three different juries. And a psychologist who examined him once said that he didn't have a soul. That's interesting from a psychologist point of view to say something like that. Right. That's very unsciencey. Yeah. And that that's a science term. Yeah, sciencey. Unsciencey. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, that's a that sounds a little too spiritual to come from a psychologist. Mm-hmm. But alas, it was in the notes I found. I mean, they weren't wrong. No, yeah, I don't I certainly don't think that they were wrong at all. And we'll get we'll get into some interesting instances of why he didn't have a soul. Also, like you said, the only killer in Texas to be sentenced to death by three juries, that is intense. That's insane. Yeah, I mean... And we'll talk about how that even happened, because it shouldn't have happened. Yeah. But he did not stick to being a good person. He decided to be a a terrible person throughout his life. Yeah, he just kind of... He was like, this is who I am. New Year, same me. (laughs) Yep. So he was born on March 21st, 1946 in Rosebud, Texas. And his mother, her name was Addie McDuff. And she was called the pistol packing mama (laughs) because she carried a gun and was known to be violent. I just felt like they issue you a gun at birth in Texas, don't they? Yeah, I feel like part of it is and part of it isn't just by pure happenstance. But I feel like every time I go to look up like a serial killer, I'm like, Texas at it again. Like, I feel like I keep seeing a lot of stuff from Texas and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine, anytime I look up anything, it's always Texas and Florida. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, people from Texas and Florida. I married a Floridian, so I've done my... I know. Yeah. He moved. He moved. (laughs) But I don't understand. Like, I felt like so many people, and even when we were talking about the bank robbery in Texas, right? And everyone always had guns. And so I don't know what made her the pistol packing mama when, like, more often than not, most of them had guns from what I've been reading about. One of the things that I kept seeing about Addie in particular was that, like, it seemed like she would go to, like, a parent-teacher conference and... (laughs) she'd be like not my son and like i don't know why but i'm imagining that she like spun the gun on her finger she didn't there's no account of that but that's the absolute like vision that i have yeah yeah well i guess she always had one in her purse and everyone knew it and i i mean for everyone to know it i feel like she must have brought it out way too many times so She sounded insane, but she seemed like she was really into her son. He could do no wrong, kind of like how you brought up maybe the parent-teacher conference, but she was always on his side, and and there's more to that later. As a kid, McDuff was known to shoot animals with his rifle, which already you know he's a freaking psychopath. There's a lot to unpack in that sentence. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I don't understand how, how that happens. I think it's interesting because like I grew up in a house where we didn't have guns. And so like and my my dad isn't a hunter, although on both sides of my family, uh, my uncles are hunters. And so it's not like, oh, he shot an animal with his rifle. Like if you're hunting deer for meat, 
that's one thing. But from all of the accounts that I saw, it really looked like he was killing them for the killing portion of it. And maybe it wasn't like, oh, yeah, yeah, dear. <laughs> that's exactly what I got from that is it wasn't for any purpose. It was just to be a terrible person. Yeah. So he also bullied teachers and classmates. What I was reading is even like in grade school, he was terrible to people. And then as he like got older, he got increasingly more terrible. I think this was also in a time when teachers could still hit children. So like, yeah, pretty, I feel like awful little kid to start with. Yeah, terrible in every way. Yeah. So when he was in eighth grade, Kenneth picked a fight with Tommy Salmon, who was popular and athletic, you know, the type of kid. And he was much smaller than Kenneth, but he was stronger. And Salmon overpowered him and had him in a headlock. And then Kenneth bit him. (laughs) So after this, he stopped bothering the kids at school, luckily, for a short short period of time. Soon after that, he was done with it altogether and he dropped out of school. So fast forward a few years and Kenneth commits a string of burglaries and he's sentenced to multiple four-year prison sentences for burglary and attempted burglary. He served them concurrently. But so you know how some people go to prison and they are rehabilitated? Yeah. That's not him. Every time he goes to prison, he gets worse. Yeah. One of the things that he learned in prison was that he was really good at manipulating and controlling people who were kind of more timid or were considered like weaker than him. Right. And so when he would do like strange things in prison, he would like manipulate people to like kind of do his bidding. Yeah. Well, he learned that those were the only people he could take advantage of. Yeah. Based on, you know, his eighth grade fight, he tried it with someone who was not going to be overpowered. And he's like, okay, that didn't work. Yes. Now what can I do? And this was about when he was 18, I want to say too, when he went for the burglaries. Yeah. And so he, and he only ended up serving a little over one year, which that makes no sense to me. Why? Well, if he was underage, if he was still 17 at the time it took place, that might be why. In one of the documentaries that I had watched, they had mentioned around 18. So I'm wondering if that's when he did his time. Uh, But maybe it took place beforehand is my guess. That makes sense. We do know that in 1964, Macduff raped a woman, slit her throat, and left her for dead in a ditch. He was 17 and the assault was never reported. That's horrific. Yeah. And that feels very young to be committing something that bad, right? Like that's... That's pretty cold for a 17-year-old, it feels like. Right. Well, it seems like he had all of the the signs, though. Like the... Oh, for sure. Torturing animals, killing animals, and then also his mother being kind of crazy. He didn't start out well. So a few years later, he meets Roy Dale Green. And it's kind of agreed that when we're talking about weaker people, Green is an example of one of these people. So he lived with his mother. He was two years younger than Macduff. One time Macduff was in Green's home and he pinned a woman to the floor and then he squirted a tube of, it's called deep heat, into her vagina. And I looked up what deep heat is and it's a muscle cream, which I'm like, I'm thinking something like Ben Gay, right? That has that like smell. Like icy hot? Yeah. Like, so it, burned and i don't even know what would possess someone to do that but so it seems like a very an ever-present theme in mcduff's life is going to be violence against women over and over and over again because he clearly has a very low opinion of women and so mcduff would brag about raping and strangling women he once told green killing a woman's like killing a chicken they both squawk Ugh. Yeah, so essentially he was a sexual sadist and he got 
thrills from causing pain and terror. And like you said, primarily women. And I don't know when this account happened, but it is said that he would tell people women were to be used and used up. Yeah, and I think that's one of like an interesting phrasing because he's clearly seeing women as kind of subhuman. It feels like, right? Like he talked about them being a chicken. And then when you think like being used or used up, that feels like a thing, right? Like you use up like a mm-hmm. tube of toothpaste. Right. I think it's interesting when people talk about killers or spree killers, when they talk about sexual sadism, because I feel like the word that's always missing is sexual sadists who are performing these acts non-consensually mm-hmm. because there's plenty of people who are out in the world perform- being sexual sadists who are with willing partners and everybody is happy safe and sane but when we put this in like a murder or you know a violent person who is inflicting terrible things on women i just think it's interesting like we use the same like the same language is used whether you're talking like what people are into or right the terrifying shit that serial killers do yeah yeah and this is definitely the terrifying did you ever watch criminal minds yes yes i love okay so i know this is really stupid but every single time we talk about a sexual sadist in my head every time i think of hotchner go he was a sexual sadist when you went every time i think of i heard i heard it before you even said it i was like it's hodge (laughs) yes we're thinking a uh, a young white male in his early 20s. He's probably got a penchant for sexual sadism. He's got a bad relationship with his mother. He might live alone. He might be working in a group. He's going to be the alpha male of the two. And he will be having a uh, subordinate carry out some of his murders. Thank you, Reed. <laughs> that is the highest compliment I feel like anyone could ever be given. Thanks. <laughs> I am obsessed with Matthew Gray Kubler. I absolutely love how random his art is. And if you haven't looked up his art, uh, I will be. You need to immediately. Have you seen the video where he's stealing his uh, co-star's shoes from the trailers? <laughs> and he's like, he's a fucking weirdo. And I love him. Gleefully scampering away with like someone's boots and like an arm full of shoes. And I'm like, what? <laughs> No. So he wrote a children's book and illustrated it. Uh, I'm looking him up. We have been binging it for a while, and I think I'm ready to go back. Matthew Gray Goobler art. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. Okay. We're looking at it. You're welcome. We're feeling some things. You're welcome. Okay. I'm looking at one of his pieces, and it looks kind of like Count Chocula. But what it is, is it's Matthew Gray Goblin. And it's a self-portrait as a goblin. And I cannot tell you how much I love that. I will say his ghost art is my favorite. I'm looking at a pumpkin right now. Yep. Yeah, that one's good too. And then also when I was saying he he wrote a book, it is called Rumple Buttercup. (laughs) And the opening, and this is on Amazon, so you could see the pictures that go along with it. Once upon a time, there lived a monster named Rumple Buttercup. He was weird. (laughs) And it's just a story of being weird and then basically finding friends. I love it. Being part of something at the end. It's so cute. I love it. I love him. It's great. There's also like a picture of him. I think it looks like he's made a costume of one of his drawings, which, oh, it's of Rumpel Buttercup. He has a Rumpel Buttercup costume. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah, he did his, I think his press tour or his book tour in a Rumpel Buttercup outfit. It's beautiful. In the story, his friend is named Candy Corn Carl, and he's made of trash. Sometimes I'm Candy Corn Carl. The day after New Year's Eve, I certainly feel like Candy Corn Carl. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) 
So I know we took a, a big uh, tour off uh, of sexual sadism here. I'm not sorry. <laughs> but i promise it's worth it yeah yeah so let's let's go back to where we were so we're talking about roydale green and they worked together pouring concrete at a construction site and early into their friendship green was like mcduff have you probably didn't call him mcduff but in my head they did he did and he was like have you ever killed anybody (laughs) and what an interesting like friendship icebreaker question yeah hey employee friend (laughs) have you killed someone lately yeah why yes and and his response was yes i've got them buried in shallow graves and he's like cool let's keep pouring this concrete okay i wouldn't ask that question right Mm -mm. but if i did if that was the response and the person wasn't clearly being facetious i think i wouldn't be driving around with them Yeah, I mean, there have been people that I've worked with before where all of us were pretty certain that he could have possibly killed someone or maybe had like a basement full of people. Oh, yeah. We've all met people who were like, oh, no, you're going to murder someone. But like, do you ask that? No, no, you don't ask. You just think it and maintain your distance. Like, but this guy was interested. Like this guy we will go on about him. We, We learn more about him. But I feel like he wanted him to say yes and wanted to say, do you want to go on a killing spree? with me or something like he he was fascinated by it and that's one of the things like as we continue like that i have a little bit of a problem with because i'm like "Mm, you seem like you knew exactly who this guy was Mm -hmm. like he showed you over and over again who he was and you just went along with it yeah you didn't kind of shy away like say for whatever reason like i don't know okay he starts with yeah i've got them buried in cheryl graves and then he continues on to killing a woman's like a chicken they both squawk and then like you're chilling in your house and he's like squirting deep heat into someone's vagina like these are all like flaming red flags that like this guy if he says he's going to commit some type of violence is absolutely going to commit some type of violence right right well that's why i say i think he wanted him to go like go on tell me more can i go with you So this leads us to 1966. Enter Edna Louise, Robert Brand, and Marcus Dunham. And they were coming back from the drive-in in Fort Worth. And I love the drive-in so much. I don't know if you guys have them there. We do. But that's like one of our favorite activities. So they stopped at a friend's house who was Rhonda Chamberlain. And Edna said that the three of them were going to go for a drive and that Edna would be back to stay the night. However, she never returned. And like, this is a good point to point out, too, that they were teenagers and that I think that this was a situation where Edna was like, tell your parents that I'm here. Yeah. I'm going to go hang out with my boyfriend, Robert. (laughs) Right, right. And his cousin, I think, right? Cousin, yeah, which is kind of weird. But anyways, so they go to the baseball diamond two miles from the I-35, which is a really weird hangout spot, but I guess it's like secluded, right? I think they're at like a park and they're parked in a parking lot where they could just like exist, maybe? I don't know. It's 1966. What else do they have? So Macduff and Green were driving around and Macduff told Green, we need to find a woman. And Green didn't really take Macduff seriously. Why? Which I'm like, (laughs) yeah, there's no reason for you not to take him seriously. He sounded crazy. And you're just like, yeah, again, I think it's like the, oh, he's not going to do it, but let's go do it. Yeah, I think that this was completely like a ploy later to seem more innocent. Like he was following along and that he wasn't like a co-conspirator in what happens next because this guy has shown you who he is over and over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. 
So Macduff spotted the teens and parked his Dodge. So Macduff had a pistol and originally he forced the boys to give them their wallets. But then he forced them into the trunk of the teens Ford. So he gets them out of the car and puts them in their own trunk, just the boys. And then to Green, he's like, they saw my face. I'll have to kill them. And again, Green was just like, everything's fine. This is normal. Yeah, he claims later on that he did not think Macduff was going to hurt the hostages, even after saying, I'll have to kill them. So I'm like, what What did you think was going to happen? Also, like, he just robbed teenagers. Like, I don't know. I've never looked at a teenager and been like... What they have? Five bucks? Yeah, like five bucks and like a baseball card in their wallet. Like, it seems like Edna was the target all along, right? Like... Well, right. He said, I have to go find a woman. Yeah. And he's robbing these teenage boys like they have nothing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So McDuff told Green to put Edna in the trunk of the Dodge. Again, that was McDuff's car. So the boys are in their own trunk. The girl is put in their trunk. McDuff drives a while and eventually he makes the boys get out of the trunk and then he shoots them each in the face. So from what I read, too, he, he tried to put them back in the trunk, but he couldn't get them in the trunk where he could close it. So they backed the car up against a fence, from what I understand, and just left the trunk open and left the boys' bodies there. Lazy. Yeah. 1966 was like a wild time for to like murder someone, because now if you did that, you'd be caught in like three hours, I feel like. Maybe I have a higher opinion of forensic abilities. Do you remember the... Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the murder statistic? Yeah, I know. So do you know what the serial killer database is? Yes. Okay. So I hadn't heard of it. Like I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know what it was. But there's a whole bunch of statistics that come from it. And basically, like, what the serial killer database is, is it's a comprehensive database for the U.S., Canada, and then some other countries. But I don't think it's as robust for other countries. But the project started in the 1990s with its first author, which was his teacher. And basically, he had an assignment where his students wrote about serial killers. And they put the, and they ended up, like, just compiling the data year after year when they had this class. And then it was at Radford University. And then there was a Florida Gulf Coast University student named... Kristen Link Sherman Lara. And she was a grad student who was working on her master's degree in forensic science. And she had the, I think, brilliant idea to put the database online so that more people could see what was in there and so that more data could be entered. And so from this data set, there are there's a whole bunch of statistics that have been generated about serial killers. And it's fascinating and terrifying. Fascinating. And it's so much. And so just to kind of like put this into perspective, I think that the 1960s were like the dawn of the U.S. really understanding that we had serial killers and to attribute crimes to serial killers because one of the statistics from the Radford University, Florida Gulf Coast University serial killer database is, is that in 1960, they have, so they have a chart and it's serial killer frequency by decade. It's a decade of the first kill. And in 1960, there's 251 in the U.S. And the decade before 1950s, 90. That's crazy. Then you jump to the 70s, 670. 80s, 823. 
724, and you get forensics starting to kind of get better and better and better, right? Yeah. And so it jumps to 2000 being 430 and the 2010s being 201. So it, I feel like that's kind of the start of it leading to its peak in the 80s. Yeah. But I just I think that's fascinating when you're thinking of like, I don't know, uh, spree killers and like where were people were people noticing how people were being killed? I don't know if that makes sense, but it's there's even different definitions for what a serial killer or a spree killer is. Sometimes people are like, oh, if you kill multiple people at once, you're a serial killer. And other people are like, no, it has to be different. Right interactions right because there's like mass murderers which are technically people who kill lots of people at once and then there's serial killers who are people who they kill one person they stop they and then there's another interaction then there's another interaction and there's that cooling off period in between mm-hmm. i could go on and on about this but we can continue back with kenneth if you'd like well what you, i think what you said that led us to this is like i can't believe they got away with it or what would they get away with it and there was an article that was posted in 2018 mm-hmm. And it seems like it's it's still fairly accurate from what I can see. But there's about a 40% chance that most murders will go unsolved. Does that blow your mind? Does that absolutely blow your mind? That is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen it in other places, but the one that I can pull up quickly is the Vox article. And that one's the one from 2018. Yeah. And yeah, they go over the statistics between like murder and rape and robbery and things like that and what percentage is solved. And it's it, it's unbelievable, but it's around 40% of them will get away with it. It says just murder, but it's like, I'm sure as they continue and it turns into a serial killer, they make you know more and more mistakes. Yeah. But still, even one murder, that's absolutely insane and it's horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be that close to 50-50. No. But I mean, I guess, okay, so in in the our generation really grew up with a crime drama. And I would say most of the time in a crime drama, when that episode ends, you know, or that series epi- ends or whatever, like the killer's caught. Like we, we get it all tied up in a bow. Our romance stories end in happily ever after and our crime stories end in prison or suicide by police typically, right? And the scary fact is, is that we are not that advanced when it comes to hunting serial killers, in my opinion. No. We have some episodes coming up on the Texas killing fields. And as part of that, we kind of looked into some systems that you kind of hear about over and over again when you're talking about serial killers like VICAP and CODIS. And if you know about VICAP, it's a program in the FBI and we'll cover it more in a later episode. But one of the things that it does is it tracks data, like data points. So they can be like, oh, think about you're watching a criminal show and they're like oh the killer used a broomstick to strangle his victim and he positioned them in this way and it was this time of year in this place right and then they use those variables Mm -hmm. and they connect it to another murderer and they find out that there's a link right right so you you would think that we have this tool where police can put in data points and can then find if their murder is part of that what percentage of police would you think would use that like police departments in the u.s you would think all of them. Yeah, it's less than 1%. It's less than 1%. Like, that's just, that feels like we're in the 60s. <laughs> like, again, yeah, it's it's horrific. When you look at the stats, I don't know about you, but when I start looking into them, when you read about them, you get like this uneasy feeling of like, oh my gosh, is my neighbor a serial killer? You know? Like, yeah. Because they could be. I have the sweetest neighbor, so I don't think she is. But you never know. And I think that's the thing is that like we have a society that tells you like people who aren't like you or what you need to be afraid of when we know that's not the case. Right. It's right. 
anyone, everyone can do awful things and hide them. Like most of the serial killers that we hear so much about are people who just blended into society, drove a minivan. Or charmers. Charmers. Yeah. Very charming people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Terrifying. But so let's get back to this. So he backed up to a fence, left the car there, left the bodies there, and then they took off in their own Dodge with Edna. Edna in the trunk. They go about 11 miles from where they left the boys and they pull onto a gravel road and they get her out of the trunk and McDuff makes her take off her clothes and then has her get into the backseat. According to Green's account, McDuff rapes her twice, then has Green rape her, then McDuff rapes her again. That's horrible. Completely disgusting. And Green's account is that he was afraid that McDuff would kill him if he didn't perform. But again, you knew who this guy was. Like, why were you in this position? And that's also not a defense. Like, not a defense at all. Like, yeah, don't do terrible things. But so when McDuff raped her again, she screamed that McDuff had ripped something. So he stopped and they put her in the back in the car and they took her someplace else. And so when they get there, it's another gravel road. McDuff told Edna to sit in front of the car on the road. And McDuff forced Edna's head to the ground and began choking her with a piece of a broomstick. Then McDuff made Green hold her legs while McDuff continued to strangle her because she's probably kicking about. Yeah. And then they left her body there. And so her body wasn't found for some time. They then left that scene and they went and they buried the boys' wallets and their own bloody underpants. Disgusting. The next day, Green hears reports of the murders and starts to, now he starts to feel guilty. Like the absolute piece of shit that he is. I think that's all a game. Oh, absolutely. I don't think that he actually did. It was more like, huh, I'm probably going to get caught for this. How can I, you know, get the upper hand on this and take the situation, twist it so I don't look like the worst one? Yeah. And it's like even in his, in my opinion, fabricated in the best favor of him kind of story, he's still an absolute piece of garbage, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. So Green feels guilty. And so he confesses to the murders. And implicates McDuff. So the sheriff of Falls County, Brady Pamplin, goes to arrest McDuff. McDuff tries to escape in his car and Pamplin pursues him. Pamplin then shoots out McDuff's tires in order to apprehend him, which feels like the kind of thing you would see in like a true crime, like fictional show, right? Like he shot out the tires. Or in that bank robbery. Yes. Yes. I I know you never see people shooting out tires in real life. It feels very dangerous. But so true to who he is, McDuff denies knowing anything about the crimes and he wouldn't answer questions. Again, not surprising. So as we said, Green turned himself in because he thought, well, one, he said it was guilt, but I think he was like, we're definitely going to get caught for this. So yeah, they were sloppy. Yeah. So in exchange for testifying against McDuff, he was given a lighter sentence. And from some articles, we saw that it said that Green seemed terrified to be in the same room as McDuff when he testified against him. Yeah. And frankly, like if I saw someone do those things, yeah, I would be scared of him. Right. And that trend continues later. Oh, yeah. Remember, he goes through multiple trials. And many people are afraid of him. Yeah. So McDuff pled not guilty. Not surprising. Garbage. And the state solved the death penalty in, I think, in multiple cases. But Green was the state's star witness against McDuff when McDuff was charged with Robert Brand's murder. Uh McDuff is tried only for the murder of Robert Brand. And Green testified that McDuff shot the two teenage boys and he raped and killed Edna, which isn't untrue. But I think that he was a more active participant than he says. 
Oh, absolutely. And Macduff, on the other hand, he acts like he has no knowledge about the rape and murders. And he suggests that Green had done this all by himself. So Macduff says basically that he loaned Green his car because Green was going to commit a robbery. And he was like, that's fine. And then take my car. Yeah, no worries. And then (laughs) he then committed the murders and rape by himself. Yeah, because the one guy could just overpower three people. And I don't know, from what I understand, he wasn't the smartest person in the room. And so it just seems out of his control. I mean, you know, like do something all alone for the first time. Well, also two cars. <laughs> like how. Oh, that's true, too. How the car <laughs> drive itself. You know what I mean? Like it was far enough away from like where they left the boys, I believe, was far enough away from the original baseball diamond that, where they were kind of parked outside of that. It was clear that there was at least two people. There had to be. Well, you could argue, like, if you really wanted to, that he got Edna in the trunk, left that car, moved the other one, cabbed it back. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's, like, some dedication. Grabbed the other car. But then that would be another witness. Yeah. Yeah. That's nonsense. But he tried it. It didn't work for some reason. So on top of that, during the trial, Addie McDuff, remember his mother, proclaimed that her son was absolutely innocent over and over and over again. And... She said he was with a girl from church that night that the murders took place, but she didn't want to give her name because she didn't want to ruin her reputation. Go to prison for murder. I'm a lady. Like, no, mama's delusional. Yeah. The original jury took less than four hours to convict him of capital murder. McDuff was sentenced to death for the murder of Robert Brand. Remember, that's the only one he was tried for. He was sent to Huntsville Penitentiary, and the death penalty was supposed to be via the electric chair. Rough. And that was when they still had the electric chair, right? Yes. I think that the reason why they probably didn't try him for Marcus and Edna's death were because they had already convicted him once. And it, maybe they were like, this will be a waste of state resources since we know he's going to this is like he's going to be executed. You can't do anything more than death. Yeah, I just feel like that's not fair to the other families, though, too, to not necessarily get the justice. I mean, they they in a sense do, but he never really had to discuss it and he never had to be sitting there hearing about the awful things he did. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like not that he got off of, you know, the other ones because death penalty is the worst thing you could possibly get, but he never was like held accountable in my eyes for that. And that's really sad for those families. No, I think that's true. And I think that's one of the interesting things to think about when you think about our criminal justice system is that you notice that when you're in a civil case, it's victim against the person who they said did the thing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And in a criminal justice case, it's the state against that person who did the thing. And so technically, it's the state saying, you did this terrible thing. And on behalf of the citizens, we are bringing this action against you. That's how I've always like, that's how I, like, I've kind of like perceived it is that. Yeah, because it, right, it's the state that's taking it. So it's not necessarily like this victim on behalf of them. We do this. It's kind of like you are a person who has done this thing. You should not be in society. We're pulling you out and like putting you in. And so if you're thinking like, OK, if the purpose of this trial is to pull you out of society and put you in prison, then the trial has done that. And it sucks that the victim's families don't get like the other, like the two other victims' families, especially, I mean, if one of them was going to be tried, there was one person who got it way worse than the other two in this situation. Right. And I think it's interesting that they chose Robert over Edna. 
Exactly. Yeah. Because she she was tortured much longer and more offenses were done to her. Exactly. That's what that's kind of what surprised me was that they chose Robert over Edna. Not that I mean, like death is bad all around, but Edna was raped as well. And so I just think it was interesting that they chose that route. Yeah. And by multiple people. Yes. So in June of 1968, Roy Dale Green was also tried for murder without malice for the murder of Marcus Dunham. Absolute garbage. It very much seemed like these were murders with malice, but okay. So he sentenced to five years for that. Then a year later, 1969, Green pled guilty for the murder of Robert Brand. He was sentenced to 25 years. And his five-year sentence runs concurrently with his 25-year sentence. So it's ba- so it's 25 years, not 30, which I find fascinating. Like, no. Right. You're, it's, it's two periods of time. I mean, I don't know. That's I thought that was interesting. So I've looked in several of the articles that we had read, and I didn't see that they were charged with anything related to Edna. That's not to say it didn't happen. It's just that in the various articles we saw, I didn't see anything about them being held responsible for her abduction, rape, or murder. Annoyingly, McDuff was granted two stays of execution, one in 1969 and once in the 1970s. And basically what that means is that he's not executed at that moment. They just like pause for a second. Yeah, they push it back. He got very, very lucky, and I don't understand. Annoyingly lucky. He should not have this kind of luck in his life. Yeah. And then after that, in 1972, the death penalty was suspended, which I never really knew that that happened. Did you? I didn't know that. Basically, everyone facing the death penalty that year just got super lucky because the Supreme Court overturned the death penalty and basically they were changing the death sentences to life. And so what's interesting is often you can get life with or without parole, but it seems like they were letting people have life with parole. And I wonder if that would have been different if he had been charged with murder, murder, rape and murder. Yeah, I I would hope so. But from what I understand is there was just a very big issue with overcrowding. And to combat the issue, instead of just making different measures or, you know, whatever, they decided, we'll just let a lot of them go. So in 1987, McDuff got parole. And when I was saying like the overcrowding, there was this deal made with the governor and the parole board. And to combat the overcrowding, they were releasing a number of inmates each day. And it started with like the minor ones. And then they're like, we still are overcrowded. We got to get rid of some more. So then they got to McDuff and they just let him go. What was interesting too, he had tried to be paroled two times before. The first time they were like, no. And then I wouldn't believe the second time he tried to bribe one of them with $10,000. Yes. And then was convicted for bribery. Yes, exactly. And then they still let him out. Right. And so he went back to the Rosebud area. And obviously, like people are like, he is not reformed. He should not be out here. And one of the documentaries was like people were locking their doors more. They were hyper aware because they knew this guy was back out on the streets. And it's not just him. There were other people like him that were released from what I understand. There were 24 former death row inmates that were released. Yeah. So they're releasing 750 inmates every week, which is a shocking number. And so what quickly happens is they run out of parole eligible inmates. And so they start lowering the standards for parole. But the problem with this is, is that they're not also changing sentencing guidelines on the top end. So you could say, I don't know, you could go to prison for writing a bad check and then they're letting out a murderer and rapist 
on parole because they're not weighing who needs to be in prison more. They're just rubber stamping people just to kind of like keep the bureaucratic machine going. Yeah, exactly. And that's horrific. Blows my mind. That's a lot of people to release, you know, bad people to release in one state and just let them like flutter away into various other things. And And it's possible that they all weren't like bad people because like I'm a big believer in like you go to prison and like one of the functions in of prisons in a successful society should be to re- rehabilitate people. Right. This wasn't that, though. This wasn't this wasn't that. They were just rubber standing people who had been convicted. Thirty six thousand people received parole in 1989. And that many people should not have. Yeah, that's an insane amount. Like, I understand most, I mean, what should be happening, but theoretically, what should be happening in this instance, though, it was just, we got too many people. Yeah. Here you go. It wasn't like, these people have made strides to be better for society. It was, this is hard. Just let them go. So an interesting note. So before he is paroled in 1985, let's, we're just going to be backing up just a little bit. So in 1985, his daughter comes to visit him in prison. And what you should be thinking right now is what daughter, what woman do we know who lived who had an interaction with him? Remember the woman from the beginning where he had slit her throat and left her in a ditch? He thought she died and she lived. Yeah, this was like a <gasps> moment. Like I get chills when I think about it. And so the accounts that I read from her was like she kind of became a little bit fascinated by him because interesting person in her life, right? That she doesn't know. Yeah. And so she goes to visit him in prison. And I don't know what she expected, right? Maybe she expected him to be reformed or to show some type of remorse or to not be a terrible person. But instead, he tried to get her to smuggle drugs in. And then, as all fathers do, he offered to take her to Las Vegas where he could be her pimp. Blink, blink, blink. (laughs) It doesn't even, my brain doesn't go through like how that conversation even occurred. Yeah, like, could you just imagine sitting on the other side of that person when they're saying these things like, I, no, no, just, again, disgusting human. And he was 43, by the way, when he was released on parole. Yeah, that that's ridiculous. So another interesting note. So remember, we had Brady Pamplin who arrested McDuff. Mm-hmm. At the time of McDuff's release, his son, Larry, was the sheriff, which, I don't know, kind of sweet. But he said, I don't know if it'll be next week or next month or next year, but one of these days, dead girls are going to start turning up. And when that happens, the man you'll need to look for is Kenneth McDuff. That's like chilling. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, go about your day. Go live your life. And like, he kind of became the boogeyman of Rosebud. Like Amanda mentioned, people began like locking their doors and there was just this general sense of unease in the neighborhood. But people were like turning on porch lights and guns that they had left unloaded. They loaded. (laughs) And that there were rumors around the town that McDuff had threatened to kill one person for every year he had spent in prison and that he was going to retaliate against anyone who embarrassed him as a kid. Yikes. Well... Remember how we said New Year, same me. Same me. Yeah, same him. Maybe a little worse. Yeah. New Year, worse me. Yeah. Also, after he was released, he left a message with three gunshots on an answering machine of a man who had interrupted him from strangling another woman with a broomstick. I just, what a what a message. And also, it doesn't seem like the easiest murder tool. No. He was dubbed the broomstick killer, but leaves a message and still goes about his day, right? So nine months after being released, McDuff was charged with making a terrorist threat. 
it could have kept him in prison for the rest of his life because he was on parole. And basically what he did, because he was a racist piece of garbage, terrible, awful person. Yeah, he is garbage. That's perfect. But he was yelling slurs at a group of black teenagers and then chased one of the kids down an alley and threatened to kill him with a knife. And again, on parole. Can't do, you can't do this anyways, but on parole, definitely should not have been able to get away with this. At McDuff's preliminary parole revocation hearing, his defense attorney had to scold him basically because McDuff would not stop yelling about how he hated black people, which like what? At a hearing. Yeah, at a hearing. And then the district attorney's like, I'm going to drop these because the witnesses are too scared to testify. Because they're letting this guy scream at the witnesses yeah. in the hearing. And I'm like, oh, come on. It's just like, it seems like an easy case. Absolutely. But I think it's just the overcrowding. They're like, no, no, no. We don't want any more people in here. We're already trying to get more people out. Ooh, he seems like one you definitely want in. Oh, right. Well, the nonsense continues at his next one. We'll get to that. But yeah, he doesn't even try at hearings. He just freaks out and... It's fine. So McDuff began living in a dorm on campus when he enrolled at Texas State Technical College in the spring of 1991. Okay. You know, like, so he he's still free. Now he's like, I'm going to go to college. So while enrolled in college, he actually ended up beating up and nearly blinded another student and threatened several others. He began drinking. He got addicted to cocaine. And from what I understand, he was like doing drugs, selling drugs. So then, you know, he's in college. He's like, okay, I'm going to make some some money legitimately, even though, you know, he was doing all this drug stuff. But he became the cashier at the Quick Pack, which is like a gas station convenience store. In one of the um, documentaries I was watching, it had some videos of like the outside of it. And it just looks like a little gas station to me. But he quit after a month. This gas station will come up again. And from what I understand, it didn't have like a a way to know if someone entered or left the gas station. That's interesting. And someone would be alone at night working. Oh, this is some dark foreshadowing. So it wasn't the safest place. Okay, he was working at a quick pack, which by the way, there's no C's in any word in that. It feels important to mention for whatever reason. And he quit (laughs) after a month. Sorry for my interruption. I mean... (laughs) It wasn't as as fun as running around selling drugs. He probably wasn't making as much. I would imagine not. So, yeah. So that's what he was doing during the summer. Again, he was not arrested for violating parole. He's running around using, buying, and selling drugs. Just fine. So then he starts to murder again. (gasps) I'm shocked. And there's several people we'll talk about. Yeah, right. And all of the victims were alongside the Interstate 35 in Texas. Can I just mention a quick brief note of my my nerding out recently on serial killer stats? Have you heard of the Highway Serial Killer Initiative before? I have only because we've researched some things in Texas. Yes. For future shows. If you don't know about it, it's exactly what it sounds like. They investigate serial killers. They work along highways because generally there's 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 a lot of issues. The biggest being cross jurisdictional crimes are difficult to solve. Yeah. So we know that Vicap, right, has less than one percent of serial killers in their databases, yet they've compiled a list of over 450 serial killers, possible serial killers, along U.S. highways. That's insane. 
it's a lot. That's a lot of people. That's yeah, shocking. Not that it's a correlational statistic, right? But the fact that that's only data from one percent of police like police departments, and it's four hundred and fifty. That's a big number for one percent. Yeah, less than one percent. Oof. Yeah, and that's as of two thousand four. Yeah. I rounded up. I rounded up. But let's let's talk about McDuff's favorite interstate, I thirty five. It's interesting because we're going to talk about a few, but there's only a few that McDuff is actually charged with. And part of this is because some of the women are thought to have been sex workers or they were alleged sex workers. And I'm not sure which were were or which weren't. So I don't want to mention it in relation to any one victim because that's not a reason to be murdered. No, not at all. It might it might mean that you were more likely to be like out late at night or he may have seen you. The first woman who was found dead after McDuff's release that was tied to him is Serafina Parker. She was found three days after his 1989 release. And again, he's never been connected officially with her death. Like he's never been charged. And she was found beaten and strangled in weeds in Southeast Temple, Texas. So fast forward a little bit to October of 1991. We know he's in college at this point, right? Right. And this one made me so upset. And Brenda Thompson was seen with her hands kind of positioned behind her back. It looked like they were bound, possibly. And she was trying to kick out the back windshield of a car and she was screaming. And it was pretty clear that she was being abducted. Yeah. And I want to think she did this in front of a police officer. Yeah. So there was a roadblock and they like approached the roadblock. The officer approached them, saw a woman screaming, kicking, you know, looking frantic because she was abducted. And then McDuff crashed through the roadblock and then was chased, but he got away. How in the, again, luckiest criminal ever. So she's never seen again. A few days later, Gina Moore disappears. So next is Colleen Reed. Now, McDuff and Alva Hank Worley were look were they were kind of out driving around looking for drugs. And per Worley, when they were out, McDuff had this interesting habit of pointing out women along the street that he wanted to take. Like it was just something he generally did, which terrifying. And again, he like makes these friends that are like, oh yeah, I don't I don't think he'd do it, but It was fun to hang out and talk about it. Yeah, like morally flexible friends. And there's an interesting variable in Worley's life that makes this all a little bit more heinous to me. And so later that night when they were out looking for drugs, they saw a woman named Colleen Reed who she was at a car wash and she was washing her car. And so she was abducted, eventually raped and then killed. Witnesses called the police and described a car that looked like McDuff's Thunderbird. Yeah. So they they heard a girl scream nearby and then they rushed to like investigate what actually happened near the car wash. And they just said, yeah, we saw a tan Thunderbird lead the car wash in a hurry and we don't know what happened from there. Yeah. So and we'll get into a little bit later, like the exact the, some of the details from that case when police eventually find Worley. So then there's Melissa Northrup. And so she was she's 22 years old and she was pregnant. She worked at the same convenience store that he had worked at. And some of the sources that I saw said that Melissa Northrup was his boss's wife and that he had become obsessed with her and that he'd also several times mentioned that he wanted to rob the store and take Melissa, which terrifying. That's just horrible. 
weird. And so normally when she was working, she would work. So sometimes she worked overnight shifts. And so she would talk to her husband throughout the night. And so it was around 4 a.m. And her husband hadn't heard from her and he called her and she didn't answer. So he came over and he didn't see her or her car. And she eventually didn't come home from her shift. Witnesses were able to identify McDuff having been near Quick Pack when she was abducted. Her body was found a month later. She had been raped, strangled with a rope, and she was left in in a quarry. So this I thought was interesting, though. So like a few days later, McDuff's car was discovered at the nearby New Road Inn, I want to say. And that's when they're like, okay, so he was close by. He is definitely a suspect. Yeah, so that made him a suspect finally, you know, after he's been running around killing everything that moved. Just horrible. And so interestingly, too, because at this point, they're pretty sure that obviously that McDuff is related to Northrop's death. So he's featured on America's Most Wanted. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into a little bit more how he's found in a bit. But I think it's interesting that like it's her death that's like really gets him in the spotlight. I think a little bit more than he maybe was before. Yeah, I think it's just because they finally had something to be like, okay, he was definitely nearby. He is known to make bad choices. But it's interesting that America's Most Wanted, you know, had this little bit about him and things stem from that. So there was a task force assembled, McDuff Task Force. Waco assembled it in 1992. So there were two federal marshals, both the last name McNamara, who worked on it. And they were both associates with Larry Pamplin, our Falls County Sheriff from before. And so it was the McNamara's then. Larry Pamplin, law enforcement from different counties and local police departments, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and the Drug Enforcement Agency, as well as Texas Rangers, Texas Department of Criminal Justice and two dozen federal marshals from Operation Gunsmoke. That's an insane amount of people for one person who's sloppy. Absolutely. Yeah. So something that I also found really interesting, but also like made me really angry is when they first assembled the task force and like they had the big manhunt, right? It, it was still a missing persons case. So the jurisdiction only fell to local authorities and the Texas marshal and federal prosecutors, everyone wanted in on the case, but they couldn't until it was a federal case. So they had to wait for it to become a federal case before everyone finally could get involved. Uh, luckily, Bill Johnson, who was a federal prosecutor, did some digging and he found someone that was willing to say McDuff sold him LSD, which then made it a federal offense so that everyone could take part in the search. Huh. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. it made me mad. Like when there's multiple people wanting to help and they're like, no, 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 it is a local case instead of just like letting... Well, and bringing it back to criminal minds, <laughs> how many times did Hodge tell them we have to wait till we're invited in? Much like of the vampire of law enforcement. <laughs> Hodger is the vampire of law enforcement. I love him. <laughs> so finding McDuff was finally a national priority. And the task force started in Temple because some of the acquaintances lived there. And then Teresa, remember, that's McDuff's daughter, told the task force that she did visit him in prison because she found him fascinating and that he tried to get her to smuggle drugs. And then she told them the story of how he suggested to take her to Vegas and become her pimp. So there's a rumor that his final parole hearing that was successful, the reason it was successful is because each member of the parole board was bribed $25,000 which it doesn't seem like would have been necessary because they were just like, and you get a parole and you get a parole. Where did he get this money, though? I don't know. I never saw anything that said they were like a very wealthy family. But the McDuff family yeah. had 
apparently told her that at least one of the parole board members was bribed. So I thought that was kind of interesting with the rumor of them being bribed as well. Yeah. So she told them that. And then she also told them that she moved out of state to be super far from him. So during this, you know, search, Macduff's associates really didn't want to give information to anyone. And I'm guessing they were just scared. And so there was a a method that they created to get information out of them. And they would give a gruesome description of the 1966 murders. And they told them details like the ages of the victims, that the boys' faces were blown off, and how Edna was murdered. And the story got a reaction from all of them. Being humans, which is good. Right, right. Well, I mean, they're associating with with Macduff, though. So I'm like, did they? I don't know. I don't trust them either. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, fair. But anyways, so task force members were working 18 hour days and not taking days off. And they would even, you know, sleep on the marshal's office floor. It was just crazy. There was uh, some interviews in one of the documentaries with the people that worked on these task force saying that they've never experienced anything like this before, because it was just all day, every day. This is all they were working on. Then finally, one of the associates said that they had spent Christmas with him in Austin. So they spent Christmas with Macduff. And this was helpful because it basically pinned him in the area a few days before Colleen Reed's murder. And witnesses had described two men in a tan car that had rounded taillights grabbing Reed from the car wash. And the assailants then took off going the wrong way down the street. So it was something that Macduff was known to do. So what I saw was that like going the wrong way down the street was something he did because he could. It was kind of like flipping the bird to authority, which I'm like, what a weird habit. Well, in his eyes, though, think about it. He is untouchable. Yeah. He literally goes to a roadblock where there's a woman in his car and he literally is there. Officers see the woman and he still gets away with it. He's on death row and then gets out of prison. Like it blows my mind. Honestly, he he felt invincible. Fair. I mean, look fair though. Yeah. The task force were trying to match one of his known associates with the description of the second assailant. So they looked at Alva Hank Worley. Remember, we had mentioned him earlier. And so he was 34 years old at the time. And he was described as the kind of weak-willed person that would bend to Macduff's manipulation. He lived with his 14-year-old daughter in a motel called Bloom's Hotel south of Temple. And so I just find that extra interesting that he's like raising a daughter. Not that you should like only have compassion for women because you like love a woman in your life. But it's interesting that like he could be a part of this crime while having a 14 year old daughter that he's raising. Agreed. Yeah. Exactly. The McNamara's and a deputy from the Bell County Sheriff Department knock on his door at the Blooms Motel. And so they were they sound like they were very savvy. And so they came late on purpose because they knew that it would throw him off. And he was like, no, no, I barely know McDuff. And so they didn't really believe him. And I think he knew him by a different name. And he might have because he did go by other names. But I think they probably like described him as well. Yeah. They weren't just like, do you know Kenneth McDuff? Nope. Good day. Like, <laughs> but so Mike McNamara starts giving a description of McDuff's previous crimes. And Worley doesn't respond at all. He has no reaction. He doesn't even blink. He doesn't flinch. And they're like, okay, you are holding back your reaction so much that it makes us feel like you have something you're hiding. 
because you're hiding yeah. a like basic human reaction here, right? And so they continue to drop by at strange times trying to catch Worley off guard. So one day they come to the motel and he's having like a little barbecue with his friends and he's drinking beer. And Mike McNamara looks over his shoulder and can see his 14-year-old daughter. And he says, Hank, you're hiding a kid killer. You know that? You're protecting a man who raped and brutalized and strangled a girl not much older than your daughter over there. Picture her on the ground, a broomstick across her throat, crying out for help, begging you to speak out, to do what's right, to save the life of some other young girl too. And then Willie starts going off and shouting at him. And so like this finally kind of like gets through to him and so once he calms down that's when he tells the McNamara's and the Bells County like the person from Bells County Sheriff's Department a little bit more it's sad that it took that though you know like he should have put those puzzle pieces together and be like oh I could see my daughter being in this situation that's awful but no he like I I guess you have to have that mindset though in order to even do any of this like separate yeah yeah your life uh, I guess against the victims I think that's kind of what happens right when you other people is you make them like not a person. So that's so dangerous, right? Because like that person's not like me and my family. They're different. So it's fine that I treat them in this way that isn't like how I would treat my family. But so Worley tells the task force, basically, he says he and McDuff were driving around Austin looking for drugs and they saw Colleen Reed washing her black Mazda. McDuff packed his Thunderbird in the bay next to where Colleen was washing her car. And he gets out of the car and he kind of disappears for a second and Worley doesn't know where he goes. And then he comes back with Colleen and he's holding her up by the throat. So her just her toes are dragging on the ground, which like what a what a sight, right? Yeah. It's interesting that there's like people who say they saw this, but did they see this part? I don't know. I don't know. I think the bay is the way that they were situated. They heard the scream, but I don't know how much they actually were able to see. Yeah, that makes sense. And so McDuff throws Colleen in the back seat and he tells Worley to get in the back to control her. And he does. So they get a few miles outside of Austin and McDuff pulls over and has Worley switch spots with them. So McDuff's in the back with her. So Worley is driving down I-35 and McDuff ties Colleen's hands behind her back, takes her clothes off. And then he starts putting out a cigarette between her legs multiple times and he rapes her. Then he tells Worley to pull over and the pair switch spots and Worley then sexually assaults and rapes Colleen, which like disgusting, just absolutely disgusting. So, yeah, McDuff turns on to Highway 317 and stops on a narrow dirt road where, again, he rapes Colleen. And when she was able to get up right, she puts her head on Worley's shoulders and begs him not to let McDuff hurt her again, which is an interesting piece of information because that came from Worley, right? Because we're talking about his account. But the fact that, like, she's begging him who has also hurt her. Yeah, I think she could she could probably tell who was really in control. Absolutely, I'm sure. Like giving the orders. Yeah. McDuff grabs her by the back of her neck and then he forces her to get into the trunk of his Thunderbird. So then McDuff drops Worley off for the night. Just like, they're just like, okay, we're going to go for a drive. And so he takes him to presumably the Blue Motel. I'm assuming it's the Blue Motel, but it could be someplace different. I'm not sure the time that had elapsed between the two. But so he takes Worley home and he knows that Colleen's still in the trunk and Worley says like, what are you going to do with Colleen? And he, and he repeats, I'm going to use her up. And as Amanda had mentioned earlier, that was one of his mannerisms. And Worley knew that that meant he was going to kill her. Yeah. 
And so it gets it just continues to get and stay gross as we continue. But police think that he buried Colleen 100 feet from his parents' house in a field. And Worley's statement about what happened get national attention. And that's when it goes on to America's Most Wanted in May of 1992. So this is where we go into America's Most Wanted because they still didn't know where he was. The informants had, you know, been with him at times, but they still could not find him. So the broadcast actually went on air in May of 1992, and it generated numerous tips. So one was from Kansas City, Missouri. And so remember, they're not in Texas here. He moved states. And a man called and said he worked with him at a trash company and that he was going by the name Richard Fowler. And then as they investigated, it turns out Richard Fowler was McDuff. In May of 1992, right after that broadcast, that's when McDuff was finally arrested and flown back to Waco, Texas. But hold on. Where was he found? Kansas City, Missouri. But where? At the city dump, like the piece of garbage he is. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just needed to say it. (laughs) Absolutely. So there's this video and it's it's so sad. But when he's basically walking in after being extradited to Texas, Melissa's family is outside the building screaming at him as he walks into the building. And so one of the documentaries has the video footage of how angry that poor family was. I mean, yeah, they had every right to be. But it's just so sad because you can see the emotion in their voice and in their faces as they're yeah, no, that's heartbreaking. Struggling with this. Yeah, it, it was hard. It, it's just a quick clip, but I feel like like I can still see it in my head right now. It's so sad. It's it's bad enough to just lose somebody who you love. It's even worse when you know that this is what happened to them. Right. And that's that's the case, too, that they had the strongest evidence for. So that's the one that they tried first. Yes. So he was charged with murder of Colleen and Melissa. In July of 1992, there was an arraignment on capital murder charges, and then McDuff pleaded not guilty. They also got a change of venue because it was heavily publicized, which that's currently what's happening, too, with the Vallow case, is they were requesting it. I think what's hard in this day and time is that, like, yeah, you should be able to find, like, a jury pool who's not tainted, but how do you do that with the way that news travels now? It's hard. Yeah, especially like going from 92 yeah. to now, where it's literally on your phone, it's on your TV, it's on your radio, it's literally mm-hmm. everywhere you look. So that's, yeah, it has to be really hard. It's from your weird friends who always want to talk true crime with you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, during the first trial uh, for Melissa, he was rude and disruptive as he was before. He tried to represent himself, but didn't provide truthful accounts of what happened the night Melissa was killed. So that was the first one he was tried for. And then it was, yeah, he was tried for Colleen's. So in February of 1993, there was a second capital murder trial in the Houston courthouse. Cameras were there. However, they could only record pictures with no sound. So there was a few clips in one of the documentaries. And I'm like, I wish I could hear what was happening. Yeah. McDuff's mother was a witness and she was 77 years old at the time and she was in poor health. She confirmed that he had used her credit card and had receipts to show that he was in the Waco area the night of the abduction. In court, he was agitated when two of his former friends had testified that he used drugs and tried to talk them into robbing the convenience store. He had like this weird obsession with it. And I think it's because it was so poorly secured 
And like it was easy, easy to slip in and out of the store without really being noticed. At one point during this trial, to his lawyers, he basically threw a pencil across the room and then yelled at them, why don't you sit on the prosecutor's side? You're helping them more than you are me. He's such a shepherd. So like he's just making this big scene and like he's he's pleading not guilty to this. And then he's losing his mind and they're just like, continue. He's just not making a good case for himself. Yeah. He also complained to reporters that his attorneys were not following his orders. And there's also a video of that, too. The judge allowed testimony of Alva, the accomplice um, for the murder of Colleen. And to establish a pattern of conduct or, you know, a signature, they they allowed him to give his testimony, too, so they could see basically what was similar in both crimes. And some of the similarities were the victims both looked semi-similar and shoelaces were used to tie them up. Hmm. So Alva, again, with what we had talked about before, he was very nervous and he was very scared of McDuff. And he even said it to reporters. There's one video clip of him basically walking and he says like, yeah, he he's scared of him. So McDuff took the stand against the orders of his lawyer. It's pretty common that an attorney will be like, don't take the stand. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to do it. And for two hours, he basically ranted nonsense. And everyone just had to sit there and listen to this. Can you imagine being in that courtroom? Yeah. I mean, have you ever had someone tell you a story that you know is a lie? Like to your face. And there's this like simmering little like indignant rage that goes with it where you're like, you're lying to me to my face. Yeah. And so, like, I would imagine there's just like a thin layer of that spread across the courtroom to anybody who had to hear his bullshit. Yeah. And then let that go on for two hours. The prosecution was probably like, have continue on, please. Please go on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because from what I understand, it was just complete nonsense. I couldn't find any, obviously, videos with sound, so I couldn't hear his wonderful story. But there are uh, little snips in some of the documentaries. In 1994, a jury in Seguin convicted McDuff of murdering Colleen Reed. The jury in Houston convicted him of murdering Melissa Northrup. Both juries sentenced him to death. So in 1994, he had received that second death sentence for the murder of Colleen, even though her body wasn't found yet. He also, there's video of him resisting officers while leaving the courtroom. So it was just an absolute shit show from what I can see. Yeah. So again, they didn't have all these bodies, right? So he's sitting on death row and they get an informant to try to talk to him to get the location of the bodies. Because as his death date came near, they're like, well, we we really need this to help the families, too. So the informant was able to get some information. And the first one was for Gina Moore. She was found next to a bridge off the side of a highway. In late September of 1998, investigators recorded the recovery of her skeletal remains, and her hands were bound with shoelaces, and her ankles were bound with stockings. And I watched some of the video. It's it's sad. The informant was also able to get information to reveal where he had buried Brenda Thompson, and it was in a heavily wooded area outside Waco, and they found her buried a foot deep lying face down. Oh, man. So here's the thing, though. So Colleen's body was still missing and he refused to give her location. Basically, the reason he said he didn't want to give it up was he thought that 
he wouldn't be needed anymore so that they wouldn't give him his privileges, which was like commissary and things like that. Even though it was only like, I want to say like two weeks before he was set to be put to death, he was like, no, I'm not going to give that up because then I'm useless to them. So officials had a meeting with him to basically say nothing will change. I mean, he's already on death row, but they just want these details. So he finally agreed. So he finally gives up the details and he's like, yeah, it's near the river. So officials went, they looked, they couldn't find her body. So then this is really weird, but they secretly arranged to bring McDuff to help them. So they had a bunch of officers. I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's gotten away so many times. Yeah. And you're going to bring him out again? When I was reading this and and watching them, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I know what happens, but I'm still like, is there going to be a chase? But anyways, yeah, they bring him out. And on October 6th of 1998, there's a video of the search. And basically, he pointed it out within a few feet of where the remains were. So finally, they they were able to return the body. Kind of a weird thing, too. There was a reporter, I want to say, that came to visit him. And before he released the information of the bodies, he still said it wasn't me. He basically said he was innocent. But then a few days before his death, and obviously he already gave up the body, he admitted to murdering the three in 1966 and the five adult females since his parole release. However, it is still suspected that he may have killed more during that time. His execution date was November 17th of 1998, after another delay. And at 6 p.m., he was led to the death chamber and strapped down. This was the only time that he showed any emotion, and he he was scared. One of the interviews said, like, his veins were kind of popping out. and Oof. They could tell that he was scared. Yeah. Yeah. But even though he was scared, he never really showed any remorse. His last words were, I'm ready to be released. Release me. Is it bad that I'm like, I don't give a shit if you're ready. The idea that like he had come to terms with his death makes me angry in a way that I can't even place. Yeah. Well, at least he was scared, I guess. There's there's one interview that was like, he had an easy death compared yeah. to the victims. I want to say it was one of the victims' mothers talking about yeah. it. And she was just like, yeah, like my daughter suffered. Yeah. And Melissa Northrup's mother, so they interviewed her shortly after he was executed. And she was like, I feel wonderful. I know exactly where he was released to. And his family didn't even claim his remains. Yeah, they didn't claim his remains. And then basically he is buried at the prison in Huntsville. And his grave is only marked by his death row number. Doesn't even have his name. Yeah. One of the interesting things that came as a result of the bureaucratic bumbling that was the parole release of Kenneth McDuff is McDuff Laws. So his case spurred criminal justice reform throughout Texas. The state built $2 billion worth of new prisons. They made parole eligibility more strict. And they imposed a 40-year minimum sentence for capital murder. Good. It's sad that it took this, though, for them to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a full episode's worth, but prisons in America are a cluster of something. And I think that in this case, in that decade specifically, Texas failed its citizens. Absolutely. That's a real heavy statement, and I stand by it. Like, if your prisons are supposed to help keep people safe because you take people who've committed crimes off the street, then you messed up. Like, like you messed up bad. And I'm glad that they made, yeah, that they passed legislation. And I'm glad that they built infrastructure to hold prisoners. I do think that any, any good criminal justice reform is going to not just take the tailpiece of prisons, but they're also going to take a very hard look at who's going into those prisons in modern day. 
a lot of people are put in prison for drug problems when rather they could be sent to addiction recovery programs. I think that's actually like a giant problem in our country. But oh yeah, that's a whole different conversation. But when we're talking about convicted murderers, they belong in prison at the very minimum. I'm not a personal believer in the death penalty because I don't think there's too many mistakes that happen too. Yeah, yeah. There's too many mistakes. And I also, I just, I don't think more killing fixes killing. I've never known of a serial killer who was like, ooh, better rein it in. I might get put to death. It doesn't, it's not a successful deterrent. Right. So I went down this rabbit hole once because it sounds really stupid, but I think on one of the true crime YouTube videos or something that I was watching. Someone had commented like, no, he deserved more time. And someone from another country is like, you should look at our prison system because we actually do things a little different. And so I kind of went down a rabbit hole of like looking at different countries' prison systems and how they're more out to reform people and like they have programs and a lot of education and things like that to help people actually progress and get better. And I was just like, oh, Quick question. Were that country's prisons privatized? No, believe it or not. Was there a whole, uh, how about industry of creating prisoners and perpetuating recidivism and then having, oh, I don't know, laws where it's easy to break them and then you go right back to prison? Sorry, I have strong feelings about it. Yeah, that's that's a tale for another time, but I did find it interesting because I went down a rabbit hole and I was just like, what? Oh, Oh, why? Oh, I see why we're not doing it. Oh, it's money. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) what is it? It's America. It's money. And I think it's an interesting thing to get to when you, if you sit to yourself by yourself and think to yourself, what do I think the role of prisons is, should be, was designed to be? Me, Lindsay Charlick, my opinion on like what prisons should be is not going to be implemented by anyone. I'm no one. But I think it's interesting if you even look at like what we thought our prisons were designed to be and what they've become. It is just another way to oppress. Right. Not saying that I think this guy could have been reformed. I really don't think so. No, not this guy. No, no, no. Garbage. (laughs) But I do think that there are people that might need (laughs) to be. But again, tale for another time. (laughs) But easy to say, New Year, same me with this guy. He didn't change. He didn't learn. And he got away with it for a very long time. And it's infuriating. Yeah, yeah. It's he was garbage. And I'm glad he's no longer part of our population. Fair. I don't even know how to tell you. How do you end this? How do you normally we're like, what do you think? And I'm like, well, I hope you think he's hot garbage. (laughs) Well, I think we're in agreement on this one. Yeah. One thousand percent. Yeah, we're at one thousand percent. But feel free to tag us if you have any New Year's intentions that you want to chat about. Yeah, I like that. Intentions are so much better. Yeah, it's like the new vibe. Like, what are you working to, like, feel about? Right? I don't know. Maybe I'm just a little hippy-dippy on it. But we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.